All right, good morning, church. How are y'all? Good. Uh, My name is Ryan. Um, If I don't know you, I'm the young adults pastor at the East Memphis campus, and it's a privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm going to have Wendy come up and read the passage today. Thank you, Wendy. Um, And we like to do this at uh, Mission Church as a tradition to stand for the reading of God's word. Here you go. I'm reading from the NIV, Galatians 4, 12 through 20. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Thank you. I'll take that. Yeah. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Uh, God, as we uh, humble ourselves, Um, I pray that we would tremble at your word. Uh, Isaiah 66 says, that's to whom you will look is those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at your word. And so I pray that uh, your people this morning um, would humble humble themselves uh, under your word. And I pray, God, that you would get me out of the way. Uh, We want to hear from you and Praise to you that you have revealed yourself uh, fully through your son and you have given us uh, your word. Um, And so I just have to um, unpack what is already there. Um, So Lord, uh, we just pray above all that you, Jesus, would be glorified, that you would be seen uh, this morning and that we would leave uh, changed by your word uh, powerfully through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. Um, Well, it's really good to be with you all. Uh, I love when Pastor Parker asks me to come out here and serve you uh, through the gospel and through the word, and prayerfully God will uh, move through his word as he always does. And so um, if you ask the average person today, uh, what do you think Christianity is? Most of the people that would answer would say that they think it's an enslaving religion, that change you to do what God tells you to do. That you're actually not free. And if you wanna be free, the cultural narrative now is you do what you want, that you look deep down inside yourself and you ignore uh, any sort of authority and you do what you want. But Jesus said in John 8, 32, that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And so the world says that if you look at yourself, that's how you become free. And Jesus says, no, if you know the truth, 
The truth will set you free. So we have a conundrum in today's world. Uh, but if you um, have been following us in Galatians, Paul has essentially, the last couple chapters, uh, sort of been theologian Paul. I think we think of Paul that way. He wrote Romans. Uh, he wrote all of these uh, incredible letters and displayed this amazing revelation from God. Um, but really what he's going to do in this passage today is he's going to be Pastor Paul. Um, so he's going to switch from theologian Paul to Pastor Paul, and he is going to urge these Galatians um, to remember when he first ministered to them. And so before we jump into verse 12, uh, it would not be good hermeneutics for me to just start in verse 12 and not at least recap what Paul has been doing, because it's the middle of the passage. And so... Um, the letter to the Galatians, the modern area that that uh, was in was modern-day Turkey. That's where Galatia was. And it's actually, uh, Galatians was probably Paul's earliest letter. Um, he wrote it about 48 AD. And he's really been addressing two major issues in this whole letter. Number one, how is somebody finally made right with God? And then number two, are Gentile Christians, so non-Jews, so most of us in the room, if not all, um, are Gentile Christians second class to Jewish Christians? That's what he's been answering. And what I mean by that, second class, is essentially do Gentiles have to become Jewish to really be Christians? That's what he's been answering in this letter. And so those are really massive questions for us, and he's been walking us through that. In the first four chapters, there's only, uh, he's basically shown, there's only one way for someone to actually be made right with God, and it's through believing in the finished work of Christ. There is one announcement, okay? There's one gospel. That's what gospel means. It's an announcement. It's good news. And Paul is saying there is one of those. There is only one gospel, and no matter what your background was, no matter if you grew up like the Jews did with the law of Moses, or if you grew up a pagan who worshiped the sun, not like S-O-N, but like S-U-N, whatever your background was, if you believe in Jesus, you become a true offspring of Abraham, who was the father of Judaism. You become, by faith, an heir to all of the promises to the patriarchs. So all the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of the Old Testament because Jesus is the promise. Not the law. Jesus is the promised offspring. He is the promised blessing that would bless the whole world through the line of the Jews. And so based on your union with Christ, you become an heir to all of those promises. That's what he's been teaching and reminding us of. So my assignment is verses 12 through 20, uh, which is in the middle of chapter four. And so I wanna just recap what he's been uh, giving them in the first few verses of chapter four. So look at verse one with me. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, so in that same way, an example, we also, the Jews, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. 
Um, So what Paul does there in verses one and two is he gives a first century example to contrast that both the Jews and the Gentiles were both in bondage prior to Jesus's coming. And real quick context, I know we get uncomfortable when we talk about slavery, um, but in the context of the Roman Empire, slavery was not tied to a particular ethnicity. Okay, so don't think of American colonial slavery. In the first century, there was no bankruptcy protection laws. Okay, there was no banks. And so if you found yourself in a debt that you could not pay, the only way to pay it off was through labor. And so that was most often the background of a slave in the first century. So if the economy went belly up, you could be a wealthy person, but if the economy went bad and you lost all your money and you owed money to somebody, that was the only option, was to become a slave and pay off the debt. So Paul is um, using an example in verses one and two of a Roman family who let's say had a child who would be the eventual heir, right? The child has to be passed on the inheritance and the family name. And he's using that example of a child and a slave. And even though the legal child was the heir to the family who would eventually get the inheritance, they would have a guardian that oversaw them until they came of age. And so Paul is saying in the illustration, the child in the illustration was the Jews. They actually hadn't received the inheritance under the old covenant yet. The law was their guardian until the inheritance came, which was Jesus. And so the Gentiles in the situation are the slave, right? Because they were outside the family of God. They weren't legally a part of the family of of God in the old old covenant. But what would often happen in Roman uh, households is if they didn't have a child, if they didn't have an heir, they would often legally adopt a slave to become their own, a part of their family. And we think of adoption today as a couple adopting a small baby, which is typically what we think of. In Roman culture, most of the time it was adopting an adult, which sounds super weird to us, but it's because passing on the family legacy was so critical in Jewish culture, passing on the name. And so, what, what we don't really get is in the first century when a Roman slave would become a child, they would get every legal right that a child would, that a, le- that a normal family child would. And so look at what Paul's doing here. He is brilliantly pointing out that the law of Moses was not the inheritance for Israel. It was not what God was ultimately pointing to Jesus was the inheritance. He was the fulfillment of all the promises, which was verse four. Verse four, but when the fullness of time came, God sent his son to do what? To be born of a woman, to become a human, to be born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that those who are are redeemed in Christ would be adopted as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Jesus came to deal with sin, finally, which the law could not do. And so what these Galatian false teachers are teaching these Gentiles is they're saying, you're actually not in the family yet. Just because you believe in Jesus, you first have to come under the law of Moses like we had to do, and you have to be Jewish first. 
And Paul is saying, no. Someone's Jewish ethnicity does not make them a true offspring of Abraham. Jesus said that in John 8 to the Pharisees. What makes you a true offspring is believing in the promised redeemer. Believing in the promises of God. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But that's not what these Judaizers, the false teachers, were saying. They were using the law as if they could be saved by the law. They were using the law religiously. And the key phrase I want to point out in verses 3 and 9, what Chris talked about last week, is that phrase, elementary principles. Now, in Greek, it's kind of hard to get the full picture there in English of what that, uh, what that word means. But think in terms of elemental materials, okay? So the physical elements of the world. What are the physical elements of the world? Water, fire, air, earth, right? Those are the physical elements. Now, you might say, wait a minute, how are the Jews enslaved to the elemental elements of the world. It was the pagans who were the ones who worshiped the sun and the water, and they worshiped the elements. So how were the Jews enslaved to that? Because Paul knows what you depend on reveals your worship. What you depend on reveals what you worship. And so what these Jewish teachers were actually doing were they weren't depending on Christ, They were depending on the law. They were depending on the law to make themselves right with God, not depending on Christ. And so, what we depend on and hope in in our hearts reveals what we are worshiping. And if you've ever read the law, especially Leviticus, the sacrificial and ceremonial parts are extremely detailed about physical elements the type of materials you had to use for the altars, the type of cleansing and washing, the types of foods you couldn't eat. None of those things were bad by themselves. They were good and commanded by God for his people under the old covenant. But they were never meant to save them. They were never meant to find, they were never meant for you to find your approval with God in those things. And so Paul, in this passage, is saying, Galatians, brothers, Jesus came to free you from dependence on the law. He came to cleanse you completely of sin. He came to fulfill the need for all of those daily washings. The ceremonial law is fulfilled. The dietary laws are fulfilled. The sacrificial system is fulfilled. He's the perfect lamb of God. He's the final sacrifice. You're washed and clean before God in him. Why would you want to go back to bondage of depending on those things? And if you do that, Galatians, what Paul is saying is you're really no different than your former life as pagans. When you actually used to worship the elements of this world. Now, sitting here today, you could be skeptical and say, okay, well, I'm not doing that at all. I don't depend on the law. I'm not doing all these different uh, ceremonial washings and food laws and all that. I'm not doing that. No, but we have our own forms of religion, don't we? We have our own forms 
of religion in the church today, we have our own ways of trying to become spiritually elite through our behavior. We put people back under the yoke of the law to earn God's approval in multiple ways today. And that's not the way you pursue knowledge and intimacy with the one true God. You only pursue knowledge and intimacy with God through his revealed son because he has fully revealed himself. So let's look at verse 12. I have two main points. The first section is the way of blessedness versus bondage. And the second point is true gospel ministry. So Paul is going to be our pastor this morning. And here's verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, I urge you, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? So he is directly correcting, rebuking these Gentile Galatians who formerly were pagans. And he's saying, guys, become as I am. Now that's a stunning statement because Paul, you could not get more Jewish than Paul. He was a Pharisee. He was... Um, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says in Philippians 3. And he's saying he was now free from the burden of the law. He became as they were, as pagans, meaning they had no background of the law. So Paul, a former Pharisee, is saying, I died to the law. I have been released by the law, he says in Romans 7. And so it's essentially like he was never really under it. Because he's under the new covenant in Christ. Old Paul is dead. Jesus fulfilled the law in his place. And so he's saying, I'm dead to the law and I'm alive to Christ. And so it's as if I was never actually under the law. Become as I am. Dead to trying to use the law for religion. That's Philippians 3, right? Circumcised on the eighth day. He gives his resume here. The tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, what he thought was righteousness, blameless, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as dung, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that what? Depends on faith, not depends on the law. Paul is saying, I tried that route already. These false teachers that are telling you to do this, I already tried that route. I was so zealous in thinking that I could be good enough to earn favor with God as a Pharisee. He was a professional religious teacher. He made a career out of that. That was his whole life. But he's saying, I didn't actually know God. 
he actually was using God. He didn't know God personally because at the end of the day, he wasn't doing any of that to know God or because he was known by God. He was doing that for himself. He was doing that to boost his ego. He did that to make it seem like he was a good person to everyone else. He was really just using God, which is what religion is. The result of Paul's religion was not knowing God. It didn't lead him to delight in God and serve him out of love and serving those around him in love. It didn't lead to him crying, Abba, Father. Him accepting the true gospel, him coming to know Christ, is what caused him to say, Abba, Father, to God. So, he's going to appeal to his ministry, to the Galatians back when he first met them. Let's listen to Pastor Paul. He says, you know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, You did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your happiness or your blessedness? Paul is going back to when they first received the message of grace. Now, the two possibilities I've heard about his bodily ailment here, um, the most common explanation is his eyes. Uh, Because of the Damascus Road experience, he had an Acts 9 with Jesus where Jesus blinds his eyes for three days. That would hurt your eyes. Um, That could be. That could be what his bodily ailment was that he's talking about. But that seems odd to me that that was why he preached the gospel to that area. Um, F.F. Bruce, who is one of my favorite old Scottish commentators, he thinks it could have been Paul caught malaria or just a fever on the coast. And if you look where Galatia is, or you look at Turkey is, it's in the higher elevation. And so what he thinks could have happened was Paul got a fever and he was going to the higher elevation to get in the cool air. And through that bodily ailment, he met these Galatians and he planted churches. I kind of like that explanation better, but we don't know. Um, But regardless of the ailment that Paul had, Paul is taking these Galatians back to when they first heard the good news of grace. He's telling them, go back to the moment, Galatians. Remember the joy you had when I first told you the message of grace. You were so happy to hear this good news and you received me figuratively as an angel of God, as a messenger of God, as if it was Christ himself. Now he's not actually saying they thought he was Jesus, but his point is, you received the true gospel through me which means you received the real Christ through me. Because it's Jesus' gospel. It's Jesus' good news of what he's done. It's God's gospel. It's not Paul's gospel. A messenger, the, the message does not originate with the messenger. Paul was a messenger of the gospel. He was a messenger of God. It didn't originate with him. That was his whole point in chapter one. This didn't start with me. I was a religious Pharisee, and then Jesus saved me from where I was going. I wasn't looking for Christianity. I was trying to stop it. So maybe you're in here today, and you have a friend or a child or a spouse who is falling after a false gospel right now. Maybe at one point, 
they were following Jesus and were on fire for Jesus and for some reason they are believing a lie. They are believing a false gospel. Maybe they're believing lies from the culture. Maybe they're believing lies from a false teacher like these Galatians were. Regardless, if they are believing a false gospel, what's normally said by people today who are going after lies is, don't you care about my happiness? Don't you care? I I just want to be happy. And the answer is, I do care about your happiness. I care about your ultimate happiness. And that false gospel that you're believing right now, it might sound good in the moment, but it's not going to get you Jesus. It's not going to get you the one who actually can satisfy you. It's going to lead you to bondage. Because anything in this world that is not Jesus is actually going to enslave you. And that can be religion, it can be secular religion, because secularism is a religion, it's just got no deity at the top. But he's saying if you want a life of true joy, if you want a life, if you want a joy that will satisfy you forever, then you have to receive the real Jesus, which means you have to receive the real gospel. So the kind of false gospel that the Galatians were believing and being told was, oh yeah, sure, 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 believe in Jesus, but if you really want God to love you, if you really want God to approve of you, here's 10 things you gotta do this week. If you wanna be spiritual varsity, if you wanna be super Christian, here's what you have to do this week. Here's how you really get God's approval. Don't depend solely on Jesus, depend on these things. Paul says that's bondage, that's slavery. If you wanna be more like Jesus, if you want more of Jesus, then read his word, follow him, be formed by him, pray to him, worship him, and depend on him. That's what Paul would say. So, the second main point, so he has rebuked them, he has said what has become of your blessedness, why are you going back to this bondage? And now I think this second section is actually gonna be a little more practical for us. The second section is true gospel ministry. So he is gonna keep being Pastor Paul and he's gonna help us have true gospel ministry. He's gonna help us help those in our lives who are falling after false gospels. So this is what he says in verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out or exclude you, the false teachers, that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So he's using this fatherly language for them. Until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you Now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul Paul wishes he could just hop on the phone or hop on the FaceTime and just be like, what are you doing? But he can't, he's got to do it in a letter. He says, I wish I could be present with you and change my tone. So here are the six attributes. This is, I think, super practical for us. Here are the six attributes of true gospel ministry for all followers of Jesus that he gives in this section. Number one, Truthful, 
True gospel ministry is always truthful. Number two, personal. Number three, gracious. Number four, difficult. Number five, selfless. And number six, Christ exalting. So he first says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Man, this is so relevant for us today. True gospel ministry is always truthful. It always rejoices in the truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And Paul is so perplexed by these Galatians treating him as if he's their enemy now by simply pointing them back to the truth. Everybody know the the famous wedding passage, 1 Corinthians 13, that talks about love? Okay, so it says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. And we all go, hmm, yes, amen. (laughs) Except we don't read this last part. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. It's always loving to rejoice in the truth. And we in today's culture really have that backwards. We paint truth and love as opposites. These Galatians were believing a lie. False teachers today have deceived the church to say that it's, and convinced the church, some some in the church, that it's loving to rejoice in sin. And I want to be super clear, it's not. It's not loving to rejoice in sin. God does not rejoice in sin. He does not rejoice in wrongdoing. And so as someone who uh, ministers to young adults and deals with young people a lot, This part of gospel ministry is probably what's hated the most, I would say. And again, I'm not even talking about just outside the church. I'm talking about inside the church. Inside the church in America, we are readily putting up with false gospels. And when those get corrected, it's immediately painted as unloving. And I just wanna point out, multiple churches in the book of Revelation that Jesus rebukes What does he rebuke? Their doctrine. He rebukes their lack of truth, their unfaithfulness to the truth of the gospel because unfaithfulness to the truth of the gospel is unfaithfulness to him. So I wanna be super clear about that. These Galatians were believing a lie and not just a lie, but one that had eternal consequences one that led to eternal death, but out of love for them, Paul was willing to correct them and to point them back to the truth. That is always loving. So, um, real quick too, we were, uh, we were been going through the Gospel of John in our young adult study, and uh, we just were in John 14. And John 14, six is one of Jesus' most hated claims. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except by me. Um, There are a bunch of reasons why that claim is so hated, but a big reason is because of the next attribute of gospel ministry. It's personal. It's right up in your face. Christianity is really personal because it's about the person of Jesus. It's not just chalked up to some 
philosophy or religion or teaching. It is teaching, but ultimately, Christianity forces you to get personal with Jesus. Other religions do make truth claims. Everyone does. Atheists make truth claims too. But those worldviews are ultimately just about differences in teachings on how to be a good person. It's easier to disagree with that. But the reason Christianity is so upfront in your, fra- in your face is because Christianity is ultimately about knowing God personally. And Jesus confronts our sinful hearts with his claims. He comes right up to us and says, you can't be the king of your life, I am. And it confronts our sinful hearts. So, it's personal. Gospel ministry is truthful, it's personal. As we make disciples in our lives with our kids, if you're a parent, with our friends, with our brothers, sisters, uh, whoever, people we are making disciples of, gospel ministry is always personal. It requires building relationships with people. And Paul is using the relational equity that he had with these Galatians to correct them. So gospel ministry is truthful, personal. Next, gospel ministry is gracious. Gospel ministry is shaped by grace. It meets people where they are. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't look down on them or shame them. Now he does call them foolish in chapter three. That's true. But he doesn't condemn them. He doesn't say you're going to hell. He asks them and rebukes them to remember when he first preached the gospel to them. He reminds them of their mutual love for each other that they had. He says, there is grace for you in Christ if you would come back to him. True gospel ministry is filled with grace. Next, gospel ministry is difficult. So we could spend hours on this one, but that's obvious. Following Jesus is difficult. And so we should expect gospel ministry to be difficult because people are involved. Paul came to them in suffering and pain. He had a bodily ailment. And yet he didn't let that bodily ailment prevent him from sharing the gospel with them and planting these churches. In fact, look at how God used his suffering God used his suffering to advance the kingdom of God. God used his suffering to continue the mission of the church and plant these churches in Galatia. It's also difficult because gospel ministry is personal and being personal with people is always harder than being distant. So it's difficult. The last two go together. Gospel ministry is selfless and Christ-exalting. So this is really where he contrasts himself to these false teachers. They make much of you. So they boast you up. They, they puff you up for no good purpose because they actually want to shut you out. They want to exclude you from the church that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. So He's saying it's good to honor each other. It's good to make much of others. It's good to build them up. But by saying that you can obey the law of God and earn salvation by the law, you're puffing them up to lead them to death. So you're actually not making much of them for a good purpose. These religious teachers who want to put the burden of the law back on you 
they're making it sound like you can do this on your own because they want you to depend on them. They don't want you to depend on Christ. That's what religious teachers do. They want you to depend on them. Their motives are selfish. It's not actually in your best interest. It's puffing you up so they can make, so you can make much of them. That's what religion does. Again, that's what normal religion does and that's what secular religion does. You don't think the teachers of the culture right now want you to be dependent on them? Of course they do. They want you to depend on them because that's what wolves do. Wolves actually don't have love for you. They want you to make much of them. And by doing that, the way they do that is making much of you, not Christ. So religion causes you to be dependent on man. The gospel causes you to be dependent on Christ. It's super clear. And Paul feels this fatherly or parental feeling towards these Galatians. He has this anguish of childbirth over them. He wants to protect them from these wolves. And as we move towards the close here, that last verse really helps us, I think, get the emotion that Paul is writing with. He feels like a spiritual father to these Galatians. They came to know Christ through his ministry. And them believing a false gospel was like watching his kids get deceived. And all of us, hopefully, have been in a situation like that where you really love somebody and it just bothers you to your core that they are believing a lie. That's what Paul is feeling towards these Galatians. It's Paul's love for these Galatians that moved him to speak up, that moved him to point them back to the truth, to be personal, to be gracious, even though it's difficult. He's doing it to serve them and love them and ultimately to exalt Christ. That's true disciple making. And if we're not careful, if we're being really practical, as we make disciples of Jesus in our lives, we can be tempted to, cause, to want them to be dependent on us. Parents in the room, we can be tempted to want our kids to be dependent on us, not on Christ. And so as we point people to Christ, we always should be examining our own hearts, examining what we're believing, examining what we're pointing them to, examining the example that we're giving them. Are we giving them more of Christ or are we giving them more of us? Zeal for the right thing is good, he says, but zeal for the wrong thing is bondage. So we should all share in Paul's anguish for those in our lives who are believing in false gospels who are either under the bondage of religion or under the bondage of rebellion that leads to bondage of the things of this world. Either thinking that they can please God by their own moral efforts or by thinking the things of this world will give them more happiness or fulfillment than Christ himself. We should have an anguish for those around us. So if you're one of those people that thinks doctrine doesn't matter, that what we actually believe doesn't really matter, 
I would just say this whole letter from Paul, this whole rebuke of their lives, their behavior, what they were living for, what they were doing was because of what they were believing, because they were believing in a false gospel, was because of doctrine, was because of what they were being taught, which means what you think about in your head and what you believe in your heart directly affects how you live with your hands. So to close, where do we see Jesus in this passage? Where would Paul, let's think for a second, where would Paul get the kind of power to do this gospel ministry? Where would Paul have gotten this kind of example of gospel ministry? Who did the best gospel ministry? Let's look at the six attributes again. Knowing Jesus as the truth leads to repentance of self, boldness in him, and wisdom from him. Truthful. Knowing Jesus personally leads to abiding in him, obedience to him, and glory to him. Personal. Knowing Jesus as grace leads to forgiveness from him, humility like him, and adoration of him. Grace. Knowing Jesus is suffering for you, the difficulty, the suffering that he endured on the cross leads to joy in him, trust in him, and clinging to him. Knowing Jesus' sacrificial service to you leads to service of him and service to others. And then lastly, exaltation. Knowing Jesus' humiliation for you leads to his exaltation in your life. That's how we see Jesus in this passage. Paul had the perfect model of gospel ministry. He saw that Jesus was all of those things to him. And so true gospel ministry, living for Christ, is the response of being loved by Jesus, being known by Jesus, being served by Jesus by what he came to do for you on the cross. That's how we're gonna have the power to do true gospel ministry. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for who you are. Uh, God, thank you that um, you are who you say you are. You are who you revealed yourself as. You're not uh, who we make up in our head or um, we, you're not who even our sinful hearts want you to be. You are who you are. You said to Moses, I am who I am. There is nobody like me. And I'm from everlasting to everlasting. And Father, through your son, you came to reveal to this world that the truth that will set us free, the bondage that we're in is our sin. The bondage that we're in is that we constantly go to empty cisterns in this world that will never satisfy our souls. And so often as Christians today, we are still tempted to fall back into bondage, going to the things of this world to depend on, going to the things of this world to hope in, instead of going to the fountain of living water that is you, Jesus. So I pray that this morning, if somebody is in here that has only been told religion, that ultimately you work your way up to God and maybe if you give your best shot, 
it'll be good enough one day. I pray, God, that you would reveal yourself, you would reveal your son through your spirit to their hearts, and that they would be changed by what you've come to do for them on the cross. And Lord, for those in the room who are already Christians, I pray that we would be examining our hearts of the things that we're depending on, and that we would take Paul's pastoral wisdom in going back to the gospel and reminding ourselves of what you've already done for us. Lord, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.